0: I am you, and you are me. It's just
1: a crazy storm. Hi, I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to Action Packed. On our weekly travel podcast, we interview some amazing people who ventured to the far corners of the world.
0: We hope you'll feel as inspired as we do by their extraordinary journeys. So let's go straight to the action.
1: This week, we're talking to top travel writer and editor, Francisca Kellett, about her extraordinary career. She started out pre- and post-uni as an impoverished backpacker with aspirations as a journalist. Her incurable lust for travel to faraway places has taken her to the very summit of her profession. Fran, welcome to our travel podcast. Now, you've been travel editor of TATLA and digital travel editor of The Telegraph. You describe yourself as an eco-nut and hotel junkie who spends more time than is strictly necessary in Africa, and you love writing about sustainability and conservation. In 2018, you co-founded Mundy & Co, a creative content agency for luxury travel brands, which you describe as storytelling with purpose. You're regarded as an industry expert and you're regularly invited to host and speak at events. How did you get into all this? Where did your endless journey begin?
2: I suppose I always travelled a lot as a child. My my parents travelled a lot. and um, well, I, I suppose actually I should start with the fact that I was born to three passports. So I was born in the States. My mother's German and my father's English. So it kind of started with travel, really. So I, I was born in the States, then moved to um, London when I was a baby. And um, yeah, I always travelled a lot with my family. My parents were keen travellers and my father, as a doctor, would get to go to lots of conferences and lots of exotic places. And he'd take, take us with him. So always travelled a lot and, yes, always had these passports. I so always sort of thought travel was something that everyone did all the time which was very lucky and quite spoilt, I suppose. But it meant that I always wanted to work in travel. My first job was actually working for Thompson Travel in the late 90s during the first dot-com boom. They were investing heavily in um, websites, and I started one of their, their first travel websites. It was called... First it was called lobster.com and then it was called The First Resort, which I think we actually worked with you. um,
0: you. I think that's when we met you.
2: That was the first time we met, yeah, working on ski content with you. Um, And then from there I started writing travel guidebooks. Um, I did a stint at Rough Guides and then worked for Rough Guides and for Footprint and various other publishers. And I went freelance then and sort of took quite a big risk and and took to the road and spent a long time travelling around Europe um, and southern Africa as well. I moved to Cape Town for a while and wrote books about South Africa for different travel publishers, which was an incredible experience. Um, I made absolutely no money. It was very lonely a lot of the time. I was constantly on the road by myself. But I had amazing adventures and did a lot of travelling, Learned how to live on a shoestring, which I think is a good life experience. And from there, I started writing for newspapers. So I pitched to the Daily Telegraph first, and they very kindly gave me my first commission. And it sort of snowballed from there. And then I got my job as digital travel editor In oh god, when would it have been? I don't know, the early 2000s. And then I was there for quite a few years, six or seven years, I think. And yeah, that's the kind of job where people, I mean, it's the same as as writing travel guidebooks. People think it's incredibly glamorous and sexy, and actually, it's not really. It's incredible hard work, and it's very rubbish money. You do get to do fantastic things. It's it is tough, and it's very competitive. Um, I think, especially when I got the, the job at the Telegraph, I I sort of thought I'd be spending most of my time on the road having wonderful, luxurious adventures. But actually, I was stuck behind a desk churning out content for the website most of the time and managing a wildly quickly expanding team because, again, it was, it was all about um, online suddenly then. So it was, yeah, sort of desk-bound and stressful and not much travel at all. And then I went on maternity with my second child and I saw that the job being advertised at Tatler and I thought oh that sounds a bit more glamorous let's give that a shot and for some reason they gave me the job and then I spent yeah several what was what happy. was
0: the what was the job sorry to interrupt you
2: travel editor at Tatler magazine yeah that was my last job and I was there uh, I think against six or seven years, I think. And that was absolutely fantastic because I'd never worked in magazines before. It was very, very different from newspapers. Newspapers, as, as you guys know, it's it's incredibly competitive. It's very fast paced, especially working online. It's it's ap- absolutely 24 seven. There's no respite at all. And then I moved over into Vogue House, which is exactly as glamorous as you expect it to be. And you're working on a monthly. And so you have much more time and people are really interested in things like headlines and pictures and um and stories You can really spend time sort of figuring out what kind of stories you're going to cover rather than just bashing out content which is a little bit how it was working on newspaper working in newspapers so i really i loved that and i had um we had a fantastic team lots of really interesting people i mean the the actual subject matter at tatler was was quite strange and different for me because you are writing for quite a niche audience um who are extremely wealthy obviously and interested in quite a sort of posh world that I didn't know that much about. So I had to learn lots of things very, very quickly. That was a fantastic time because I could go pretty much anywhere I wanted. But of course, I had little children, so I, I wasn't constantly on the road. But I did get to have some really incredible
0: trips and go to all sorts of glamorous
2: places and meet interesting people. And, and um, yeah, that was, that was a fantastic time.
0: So do you have a favourite trip that you went on, a favourite place?
2: Oh, God, it's really difficult. I have so many favourite places. I always say my favourite place in the world is Cape Town because I actually lived there and I had a really, really happy time there. And it's a fantastic city, which has everything that you need in life, really. It has, you know, wonderful outdoors. It has incredible beaches. It has a fabulous food and wine scene, a really interesting cultural kind of scene as well. I love Cape Town. In terms of trips I've done for work, well, I I mean, yeah, lots of crazy things. I got to go to Necker Island when I was at Tatler, um, which not very many people get to do. Necker Island is a really incredibly beautiful tropical playground for the super rich, essentially. It's sort of like Butlands, but gold-plated. It's, it's just fantastic. Everything is on tap, so you get to do anything you want at any point. You know, you can go off sailing with with some fantastic sailing coach. You can have a tennis lesson whenever you want. You can eat whenever you want. There are bars just around the place with friendly bartenders kind of leaning there, waiting for you to come up and ask for a cocktail. It's all laid on there 24-7. It's just absolutely incredible. I mean, it's quite strange and doesn't feel particularly authentic or real or or even Caribbean but for those that have the money I can understand why they enjoy it there but then I I also got to go to places like you know um, North Island and the Seychelles which was absolutely beautiful I got to have incredible adventures for example I got to dehorn a rhino in in South Africa as part of an anti-poaching team I got to go to Tanzania and spend a day again with another anti-poaching team kind of learning about how they train their dogs to prevent rhino poaching yeah I got to go to all sorts of places and stay in really fantastic hotels as well so i'm quite an expert now in luxury hotels which is yeah lucky me so how do you dehorn a rhino <laughs> with, with a chainsaw um, <laughs> it's a big it's it's yeah it's, it's it's a big endeavor they basically they track it via helicopter and they dart it from the air and then on the ground the team kind of moves in very quickly and the rhino crumples down onto its knees and in comes the vet and they do all sorts of tests and then they literally with a chainsaw they, they saw off. The horn it doesn't hurt them at all because it's just made of it's made of hair fiber a rhino's horn and it grows back so it doesn't hurt them but they are sort of crumpled on the floor asleep while their nose horn is their horns being chopped off and then we got to do i, I got to do things like take take blood from behind its ear so you know I mean, i've never done anything like that obviously never even held a syringe and then i was there with this unconscious rhino taking a blood sample from behind its its ear and i got to touch it and feel it and it was an absolutely extraordinary
0: experience Oh, amazing. Sounds amazing.
2: And then, of course, once they wake up, which is only about five minutes after they go down because they can only have a little bit of this this stuff and otherwise it actually affects them. Once they wake up, you have to run very, very quickly because they're angry and confused. So we had to dash back to the,
0: the Land Rover and tear
2: off while it sort of staggered around angrily. Yeah, incredible.
0: And this stops people from poaching them because they only want the horn, don't they?
2: They only want the horns, exactly. So I actually held this horn in my hand afterwards and it wasn't even a fully grown horn because he'd been dehorned before. But this little sort of nub of a horn in the palm of my hand was, was worth something like $200,000. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. So they take these straight off to some safe. They're sort of whisked off to Joburg to be put in a safe, never to be seen again.
0: On your trips, have you had any really bad ones where something went wrong? One of the most memorable
2: um, trips I had when I was a young backpacker, because before I I started out working as a journalist, I just spent lots of time traveling. I spent six months in India once, and um, we got stuck in a place called Orangabad, which is in the middle of nowhere, but is actually also a city of, I don't know, five million people in that very kind of Indian way. And it's near an incredible place called the Ellera Caves, which are these beautiful sort of Indiana Jones style caves, which are built down into the rock. Absolutely incredible. So we saw the caves, and that was wonderful. But then we got stuck in this very ugly industrial town for a very long time in this bizarre Catch-22 situation where we couldn't buy train tickets. And we had to get to the train station each morning at a certain time to buy these tickets, but we couldn't actually get there in time because they sold out. It was all very strange and complicated in Indian and no one could speak English. And we just kept going around in circles in the city for, for just days on end and got stuck there for quite a long time. So that was one experience. Another one was actually on my honeymoon. This was when I was still at the Telegraph. Um, we went to Guatemala and Belize. And I won't I won't name and shame, but we did end up staying in this. Really, quite well known, very beautiful hotel. And as I went to bed on my first night, I lifted up my pillow. And having spent a long time in India, I am very good at recognizing bed bugs. And there, underneath the pillow, were some bed bugs. And I thought, my God, my honeymoon, first night in a luxury hotel, and there's bed bugs. I went and complained. They moved us to a room. Lifted up the pillow. There were bed bugs. So every room we moved to had bed bugs. So um, that that wasn't ideal, especially as it was our honeymoon. Oh, and I've got another, another story about a bad experience. Probably one of my worst travel experiences is actually one of the stories I like telling the most because it always makes people laugh. We were in the Kalahari Desert in this banged up old car, which I was driving around all of Africa in, and one of the wheels fell off. We were very worried because there was a lion pride nearby, and so the big worry was that lions would come and, you know, attack us if we tried to get out and change the wheel. But then some, some guys drove past in a Baki, a pickup truck they call them in, in South Africa, kind of saved us and were tearing through the desert trying to get to this camp before it closed for the night. And then suddenly out of the bushes, we saw this enormous giraffe which tripped at the sight of us tearing through the desert and fell onto the back of the baki. And its neck swooped over my head and it really very, very nearly crushed me. So I'd have been killed by a falling giraffe, which I think is a particularly strange way to go. Yes,
1: it's such a pretty strange experience, to put it mildly. One of the things that has always interested me is if you work for a large luxury magazine, how much of the way you go and the content is influenced by advertising?
2: That is a good question. There is some influence, certainly. It depends on on which section it is. I mean, when I was there, we didn't ever have to write about anyone. But if there was an advertiser that had a particular relationship with someone in in the building or in, in publishing, they would perhaps say this advertiser had this wonderful new hotel, would you perhaps consider giving it some coverage? And while there's no need to actually do so, it would then almost seem childish to say, no, I'm not going to check that out. So there was kind of an understanding that those people that advertised would at least get a sort of viewing or an airing. But of course, then if we experienced a property or a company that had advertised, which we didn't like and didn't think lived up to the standards of Tatler, that wouldn't have made it in.
0: And sustainability is a big interest of yours.
2: Yes, yeah, sustainability has always been an interest. When I first started out, I actually volunteered at um, an organisation called Tourism Concern, who I don't think exist anymore. They were very shoestring back then. and it, But it was just something that always interests me from having travelled a lot, as a child, and then also when I went backpacking after um, after univers- before and after university, I just went off and, and spent months and months on the road. You could just see very quickly the impact that travel had, especially as a backpacker back then. Every single backpacker used Lonely Planet and Rough Guides. We'd all go to the same places and stay in the same hostels and eat in the same places. It was very much the kind of backpackeroo. And you could just see the impact that was having, not just in those places we visited and we stayed at, but those places that didn't get featured in the books and the sort of local communities you you could just tell very quickly the kind of impact that you were having as a traveller. And in terms of things like, like I remember sort of noticing things like plunge pools and even little hostels I'd be staying in, I don't know, southern India or or South Africa with plunge pools, while outside there was a drought. And you think, this isn't there's something not quite right about this. So I've, so I've always been very interested in it. And yeah, like I said, I volunteered at Tourism Concern right at the beginning and did quite a lot of work for them, did some writing for them and research over the years. And then when I became a proper travel writer, I, I just started trying to sort of subtly weave it into what I was writing because it was quite a, quite a dry subject, something that people don't find particularly sexy or interesting, especially back then talking about, you know, sort of carbon credits and so on not many editors wanted to run your stories if those are the kind of things you wanted to write about or even you know community tourism or anything like that so I tried to subtly weave in a few things into my stories and then as I actually sort of became more successful and I suppose had more power it was easier for me to commission stories like that that I myself was interested in and 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 try and especially at Tatler where people where, where the readers obviously have a lot of money to try and encourage them to spend spend their money in the right sort of kinds of places so perhaps feature more heavily the sorts of hotels that you know might be smaller and more family run or um, those companies that have a strong sustainability story within them or or do quite a lot in terms of local conservation or or local community so I just try to give that more and more presence in, in my pages and then as a freelancer that's pretty much all I try to write about these days. I think there's a much bigger interest and demand for it now. I think travellers are much more savvy and much more aware of, of their own impact when they travel. So I think the travel media has changed accordingly and now commissions a lot more pieces about conservation and community and sustainability. Thank goodness, because I think it's it's really vital. Tourism is the biggest industry in the world. It employs more people than any other industry. It can have a huge impact if it's done right. So I think it's really important as a as a travel journalist to try and influence our readers to be spending money in the right places.
1: Now travel has changed in ways we could never have imagined in two thousand and twenty. How do you see two thousand
2: and twenty one? Oh God, yeah, um, it's all been it's all been a bit bleak, really, hasn't it? It's really hard to know. I mean, it, it was all feeling very very positive just a few short weeks ago, as things were starting to open up again, and and you know, COVID corridors turned into open borders. But that, as of as of this week has changed again with, with new um, rules on, on quarantine and so on. So it's very tricky to know. I mean, obviously, this year, I think it's all about staycation. I think most people aren't going to be going abroad or wanting to get into a plane. I personally, I'm going to be jumping into a car um, next weekend and driving to my family home in Germany. I'm very lucky that I've got family there and can just drive over there and see them. So that's what I'm doing. I'm not getting an a on a plane anytime soon either but i think it's it's a terrible tragedy really because so many countries rely on us rely on on tourism and so many companies are absolutely on their knees now because they haven't got the people coming and i think it's dreadful so yes anyway this this summer i think is about the staycation i think hopefully in autumn a few more people will be traveling a little bit further further afield europe obviously is opening up but with limitations i think long haul is the big question really when are people going to be starting to fly long haul again the risk, first of all, associated with being in a plane for a long time, being in airports, obviously, and then also being far away from home. Most of us are quite risk averse at the moment and want to be, you know, somewhere where we can get home quickly if we need to. So I think next, it's going to be tough. I think it's 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 extremely tough this year. I think next year will be even harder for companies to try and sort of build up that trust again and build up those, those clients.
1: And we're going to see a high percentage of those travel companies disappearing at the moment.
2: Yes, I think that's true. I think they, they already are. The, the large hotel companies that have war chests to rely on, I think will be okay. Um, it's the smaller kind of family run hotels who are yeah, having to close down. I think it's very sad. Not, not just hotels, of course, also tour operators, travel agents, and then all the, all the, the jobs in transport, in, in aviation, train, train routes shutting down, you know, all, all sorts of things. And that's not even covering travel media, how that's been affected, because obviously advertising has plummeted. So that affects the newspapers and the magazines, with various publications closing down. It's, yeah, it's a fairly bleak picture, I think, for travel at the moment.
1: Not a good time to be a freelance travel journalist.
2: Not a good time to be a freelance travel journalist. I think everyone needs their plan B or their plan C.
0: But you started out Mundi & Co. When when did that begin?
2: Yes, that's right. I launched Mundian just after I, I left Tatler uh, in 2018. I, I sort of saw the writing on the wall to a certain extent. For travel media, I could tell that the landscape was changing dramatically and had been changing dramatically really my whole career in terms of websites and online and and social media. More and more publications were closing down, sections were getting smaller, the pool of freelancers was getting bigger. And I sort of thought, if and when I become a freelance travel journalist again, I'm not sure that's entirely going to work long term, and I needed a plan B. And I could also tell, having worked in travel for so long, that there was a real gap in the market in terms of how luxury hotels and luxury travel companies talk about themselves. Most of them are really quite bad at it. They use sort of dreadful marketing PR speak, which doesn't really speak to clients at all, and especially with travel media on the down, I thought there was perhaps an opportunity there to fill that gap. I launched with my managing editor from Tatler, who had also left that year, and we decided to create a, a content agency which tells those stories on behalf of brands. So basically, uses a very sort of journalistic approach to find the stories and the people behind hotels and behind travel brands to try and bring those to life for their customers. So we do everything from, um, we've launched magazines for a five-star safari company, we've created websites for luxury hotels, we do social media campaigns and strategy, um, all sorts of things really. Anything where brands need some kind of help with their storytelling, with with how to talk to their clients. And our USP is, the thing that we're really passionate about is sustainability. Lots of these five-star hotels And tour operators do fantastic things in terms of conservation and sustainability, but mostly they're quite bad at talking about them. They're not very sexy, not very engaging, not very interesting. It's often quite dry and preachy. So we try and come in and make it a bit more engaging, a bit more personable and a bit more human.
0: And are there any properties that you've come across that really stand out as being good at sustainability?
2: Yeah, yes, absolutely. There's there's lots of fantastic places. One of my all-time favourites is a hotel in South Africa called Routbos, which is spelt G-R-O-O-T-B-O-S. And it's a really quite small lodge in the Western Cape, but they do absolutely fantastic things. They're all about sustainability and conservation and community, and they've done everything from create sort of fantastic sports camps for local township children to these, fan- these, these huge organic gardens where they grow all of their fruit and vegetables, they have training schemes for local youths who wouldn't have access otherwise to further education. Um, they have a partnership with Kew Gardens where they have some of their sort of the people in their in their training schemes are then flown out to Kew Gardens to learn about horticulture. They do absolutely fantastic things. And of course, they're completely, they're plastic free and they, they have all their own um, filtered water. They basically do everything you should do, but it's all wrapped up in this incredibly luxurious, fantastic experience for people as well. So you, you still get to have your thousand count bed sheets and your fantastic food and beautiful Wine and brilliant experiences, but you're also doing good just by being there. There, there are lots of brands doing doing really good things. I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of the African safari companies. People like Ambeyond, do fantastic things. Singita. One of our clients at Mundi is Asilia Africa. They do really interesting conservation work. I'm a big fan of Suniva Fushi in the Maldives. They're very interesting in terms of of everything from reducing waste to employing locally, uh, training locally, helping local communities reduce their waste, phasing out single-use plastics, which is a huge problem in the Maldives, all sorts of things. Then there's places like Fogo Island Inn in uh, Newfoundland. I'm not sure if you've come across that, but that's this fantastic lodge which was opened by a woman called Zita Cobb probably about eight, nine years ago. And it's completely sustainably built, sustainably run. And it's all about providing something for the local community in terms of new employment. So it's basically an island where all the people there worked as cod fishermen. And then as cod fishing declined, they were all unemployed. Then this lodge came in to basically open and provide a new form of employment for local people. So there's lots of really interesting brands doing fantastic things. Some of them are tiny, some of them are much larger. But it's very easy if you've got the money, certainly if you're a luxury traveller, to spend that money in the right places.
1: And is there anywhere in the world you haven't been to and you want to go to?
2: There's so many places I haven't been to. I've got such a long list. Oh my God, Um, I don't know South America very well. I've only actually been to Brazil in South America. So I'd love to go to Chile and Argentina. Um, bits of Central America, I'd love to I'd love to go to. Uh, oh, goodness me, so many places. I don't know Scandinavia very well. I've never been to Norway. I would absolutely love to go there. Asia is, again, I don't spend a huge amount of time there. I'd love to go back to India, where I haven't been in about a decade. I've never been to New Zealand. I've never been to West Africa. Lots and lots of places. I mean, the list is endless, isn't it? But it's tricky when you're trying to travel responsibly and you're trying to fly less so that your carbon footprint is smaller. You know, that, that sort of long bucket list starts to, yeah... It needs to get shortened, basically, because I can't go to all these places.
0: You also write a philanthropy column for Lux magazine.
2: Yes, that's right. I started writing my philanthropy column probably about 18 months ago. And that is really fun because I basically get to interview fantastic people who do amazing things. And again, it's very much because Lux magazine is aimed at high net worth individuals. This column is very much about trying to encourage people with lots and lots of spare cash to give it away to worthwhile causes. So it's a really fun thing to write and I get to speak to really interesting people that have done incredible things. What
1: keeps you motivated to keep on travelling like this?
2: I don't ever get bored by travel. I'm just endlessly fascinated by it. I, I don't ever stop getting excited by driving to an airport, getting on a plane, going somewhere new. It never gets boring for me. It's always hugely thrilling, which is it's sort of bizarre given how long I've been doing it and how much I've, I've, I've done it. I still just get an absolute thrill from going somewhere new. It gives me pleasure and a rush like nothing else does in the world
1: but you're always glad to get home again
2: i should say quickly always wonderful to see my children again <laughs> yeah i had one trip to january thank god i took that trip i nearly didn't it was just the alps but yeah thank god i took that because that's yeah the longest i've gone without traveling in, in forever decades
1: so what's your vision of yourself for the next few years?
2: Well, again, it's a little bit tricky with the current situation. My vision was, because of my company, Mundi & Co., and I should mention the website, if, if I may. It's uh, wearemundi.com. So that's we, W-E-A-R-E, and then Mundi is M-U-N-D-I. Dot com and we're also on social media at We Are Mundi. The company was going from strength to strength. We just moved into our own offices. at the Beginning of the year we had a raft of, of fantastic clients that we were really passionate about and we loved working with and obviously quite a lot of those have gone. We had, we, we did manage to hold on to a few and actually have managed to get two new clients in lockdown. God knows how that happened but it, it did. So things aren't going quite the way they were meant to at the beginning of the year so I was expecting a couple of years time to have a team and to be churning out fantastic, inspiring magazines for For brands that we loved and respected I'm not sure if that's going to happen quite as quickly as I thought now so I suppose my vision is to be to be still writing as much as I can and to be working with companies and clients that I respect and admire as much as possible and hopefully get back on the road soon and do some proper traveling.
1: Francesca Kellett thank you very much indeed for appearing on the show and we wish you the best of luck with your travels in the future.
2: Thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute joy.
0: That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, do please visit our website, actionpackedtravel.com, or subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, or another of the many platforms that we're on. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with at least one other person. And I am you. And you are me. It's just a crazy storm.